Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, in the name of Jesus, the Christ. I'm excited today. I have my son with me, Cole, and two good friends from going back 28 years ago, Pat Stevens and Alan Gooden. Alan, you know because he's been on the podcast before. And we're going to finish chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And together, we're going to teach this. We have just gone through it. It's a very difficult passage starting in verse 20 until the end of the chapter. And we're going to finish what we call the section on the spiritual gifts, chapters 12, 13, and 14. And we're just going to pick up in verse 20, and these men are going to make uh, comments. They're going to have questions. Different individuals are going to read. But we're going to go through these difficult sayings by Paul. And I don't mind saying that, that they're difficult because we're going back almost 2,000 years ago looking at what Paul is saying to a church in which he has found it and giving them discipleship about the spiritual gifts. And we do not know all the different dynamics of what is happening within the church, but we're trying to really ascertain what is the question and what is the answer for them And we want to do this from the aspect of original intent. And once we can figure out what God is saying through Paul to them and the principles, then we want to apply it to us today. God's word is true. It does not change. It's not something that is progressive, that in the way that, okay, we're a different church today, so it may mean something different for us today. I don't believe that at all. It is the living word of God in this sense, the principles that God established through individuals and what God said through them, those principles are the same principles for us today. So we're going to pick up in verse 20, the last podcast we finished in verse 19. We're not going to review from what we have already said, but we're going to pick up in verse 20. Cole, if you don't mind, if you could read verses 20 through 25, and then we're going to talk about these verses. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So let's look at these verses starting in verse 20. We're looking at the aspect when it comes to sin and evil, yes, we should be innocent. But when it comes to the spiritual gifts, 
we should be mature in our thinking. And so this is just a, a saying by Paul that says, yes, when it comes to evil, yes, be infants, be innocent to these things. But when it comes to what we're talking about right now, in your thinking, be mature. And then in verse 21, he starts by saying, in the law it is written. Now the law specifically is the first five books, but Paul is quoting from Isaiah, which is part of the prophets. But many times you will see that all of the old covenant is described as the law. So here is one of those contexts in which he is saying, in the law it is written. That is a context in which the word is defined. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, the old covenant scriptures. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now this is very interesting, and I'm going to go ahead and read verse 22 because it applies to this scripture passage. So then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. And when you go to verses 23 and 24 in a minute, it seems like he's going to be saying the opposite. But what I believe that Paul is doing here, by Isaiah, he's establishing a principle. And the principle is this. As you look, I think it's around chapter 28 of Isaiah. He's, he's talking about a fulfillment of prophecy that will take place that when you hear men speaking strange languages, you will understand that the judgment has come. And that the unbelievers that did not repent and did not hear the word of God, or they did not heed what God was saying through Isaiah, and through Micah, and through Hosea, and through others that were prophesying at that time, then when they hear these strange languages, who is it going to be assigned to? The unbelievers, those that did not believe. So he's using that principle kind of as a springboard or a foundation to talk about that tongues is not for the believer. It was assigned to the unbeliever, but prophecy is assigned to those who believe. And, for, and if you look at that, those who believed the prophecy, they could, they could hear the message. It was in their own language, and it was assigned to the believers, but the unknown language was assigned to the unbelievers. And so we're going to go from that into verses 23 and 24. And please, guys, speak up at any time because I don't want to be doing all the speaking. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say to you that you are mad? Now we're going to the overall specific context of Corinth. Even though the tongues of other languages was assigned to unbelievers in the time of Isaiah, they knew that the word of God was true and that the judgment had come upon them. But those who heard the prophecies in their own language, prophecy was for those who believed. And they saw that the prophecies were true. But now in verse 23, we're coming back to the context 
of the whole church. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and an ungifted man, someone that doesn't believe in the gifts, or they have never experienced the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit, they come in, they will think that you're crazy. They're not hearing anything that they can understand. What are they hearing? Things that they cannot understand. They don't even know what's going on. And so this is in a negative context here. They will think that you are mad, that you are crazy. What is going on here? And everything will be out of order. And the whole context as we get to the end is everything must be done in an orderly manner. Yeah, Scott, and I think looking at these now and, and thinking back, we're looking at flow of thought, you know, not taking the chapter. And the preface before this was all about edification and what's going to edify. And if you look at these two passages, although they're in different contexts with the Old Testament Isaiah, and then Paul jumps right into the, the church in Corinth, you know, the whole point is, are you edifying, you know, and, and if you come in and Cole starts speaking in tongues, Pat starts speaking in tongues on this podcast, I start, you know, someone listening to it's going to be like, these guys are crazy. What, what is this podcast? Um, we're not edifying anybody. And, and I think he's kind of bringing it all back to the, where that builds yes. on. The unbeliever and the ungifted will think that we're crazy, yeah. that we're mad. And so when we look at this earlier for the believer, there's also not any edification unless what? It's this interpreted. interpreted yeah. But here he's focusing on the non-believer and the ungifted man. As they come into the church, if they hear us all speaking in tongues, they will think that we're mad. But let's go to verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. And if this is a prophecy from God, it's in a language that they can understand, and there's the conviction that is coming upon them. If this prophecy is of God, then it's bringing forth the word of God in a way that they can understand because it's in their language and they can be convicted by all. If it's in an unknown language, how can there be conviction? They don't even understand what's going on. So again, let me read verse 24. But if all prophesy, opposite if all speak in tongues, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called into account by all. There is the message of God that's going forth that the unbeliever and the ungifted man can understand it, and if it represents God, they are being convicted by everything that is being said. Verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Who is his heart there? The unbeliever. And the ungifted man. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So it is a message they can understand. If it is a prophecy from God, a revelation from God, we're going to see a little bit later, if it is truly coming from God, they will fall on their face and worship God because they know that God has spoken to their lives. I think when you look at 23, you can't really just take 23 as being an isolated scripture. You have to tie it in with 24, as you were saying, that the 
prophecy brings credibility and clarity to what is being done in the spirit by speaking in tongues. And it's for the edification of the body. Yes, the speaking in tongues and not being interpreted. And if all speak into tongues, the unbeliever and the ungifted man will think that you're crazy. So this is what this is saying, Pat, is that it shouldn't be done. You know, I know for a lot of people that come from a Pentecostal charismatic background, they do not want instructions placed upon them and boundaries placed upon them with the spiritual gifts because they see that as unspiritual. But later on, we're going to see that Paul is saying, if you don't follow these instructions, we don't even recognize you. We don't even recognize the gift of God upon your life because God is a God of order. And so he's giving them order. So in verse 23, it's a negative. If they all speak in tongues, they will think that you're, you're mad. But if all prophesy, they will be convicted by all. Why? Because it's a message in a language that they can understand. And that they will fall on their face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. If this is a true prophecy from God speaking to their life, they will be convicted and they can understand it and they will worship God because of the conviction that has come upon their lives. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think Cole had something. Yeah, I just wanted to add in regards to verse 25, just personally how I've even been in new churches that I've never visited before and immediately someone will come up to you and prophesy over your life, and it may be something extremely vague that just doesn't sit right. And so I think it's really important that in order for prophecy to be convicting to a non-believer, to be edifying to that non-believer, I think it's really important that it has something specific and verifiable that they can really understand that, okay, this is from God. This is not just a person making up something about my life, I think in that context, it would really repel an unbeliever. But if the prophecy reveals something that only God could know, I think that's when it can really grip their heart. Yes, and we're going to get to the point in a few more verses, Cole, that there has to be the passing of judgment on what is being said. And so today we're living in a culture that people are very casual with prophecy or a revelation, a revelation not in the context of bringing a new word from God in the sense of scripture, but a revelation of revealing something in someone's life that people are very casual with it, and it's not very specific. It's kind of very general. And so an unbeliever or, or an ungifted man leaves that situation, and they say, well, I'm not sure what that was. However, there is accountability in what we prophesy. We're going to see as we flow through this chapter. And we should pass judgment on what is being said. And also, there is order in how we prophesy. There is order in how we bring forth a revelation as well. And so let's continue down this path and see what Paul says, starting with verse 26. What is the outcome then? Brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, 
has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now, verse 26, I have dealt with this verse the last, say, 30 years of ministering within churches that some people believe from this one verse that everyone that comes into the congregation should do something within the service. I've uh, come across this over and over because they will say in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, it says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm. Each one has a teaching. That means we can all teach. Each one has a revelation. Let's all give a revelation or someone bring a revelation today. Each one has a tongue, an interpretation. What this is saying is that Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church and they are coming with this mindset. And you look at chapters 12, 13, and 14 and you look at the spiritual gifts and you look at the abuse of the spiritual gifts and part of the abuse of the spiritual gifts is that there isn't any order. So they're coming with a mindset. God, give me a revelation today. Maybe there's a message in tongues. It has to be interpreted. Someone comes with a psalm. Someone comes to teach. It's not setting a precedent that everybody has to come ready to do something within the service, but the Corinthian church had this mindset, and what is Paul saying? Let all things be done for edification. Anyone that's coming, anyone that has something that they want to contribute to the service, you have to remember that there's order, that there is edification of the body, and things have to be done in a proper way. That's how he's going to end this chapter as we get to the end. So it has to be done for the edification of the body of Christ. Yeah, I mean, when you're saying that, Scott, and it's hard, like you said, we're going back to something written 2,000 years ago, but you can almost hear the tone. You could believe the tone is this. So he's saying, you know, what is the outcome then, brethren? So when you guys assemble, each one has a psalm, each one has a teaching, each one has a revelation, each one has a tongue, an interpretation. But he's like, no, just let all things be done for edification. He's almost listing out their mindset, what they're coming in there with to me. If you would agree with that, if you read it another way, you could read it like, well, each of you has a psalm, a tongue, Cole has an interpretation, a revelation. He's not saying it in that way, I think. It's, it's almost like he's listing out their mindset coming into it. And he's like, no, stop. Let all things be done for edification. Yes, I, I don't think he is saying to them, no, don't do this but he is addressing their mindset. And that is the mindset of some churches today, that there shouldn't be anyone that's preparing a message. There shouldn't be order within the service. Just everyone comes ready to teach, to give a revelation, to sing a song. Uh, There shouldn't be any order of service or anything, but just the opposite is Paul, that Paul is saying to them, that everything should be done for edification. Everything should be done in a proper manner, an orderly manner, in a proper way. So he is setting structure for them in that mindset. So I don't think that he's saying, no, don't come with a psalm or don't come with a revelation. He is saying, if you're coming with that, understand it has to edify the body of Christ. But some have used this, and I've come across it over and over in many different countries, places here in America, that they say, okay, the Bible doesn't want us to have someone bring a prepared message. Anyone can come. 
anyone can share. And I'm saying absolutely not. We have order within the body of Christ. There is a shepherd, a pastor. There is someone that is responsible for what's going on within the church. There are elders. There are deacons. There are people that have specific ministries within this body that will oversee what is taking place. And if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, and if it's not done in an orderly way, it needs to stop. And this is what Paul is saying back to them. You want to come with all of these things, it must be done for the edification for the body of Christ. And in these contexts, he's talking about order. There is proper order. And we're going to get into proper order with prophecy here. I think Cole had something. Yeah, I just think you brought up a really important hermeneutical principle that can be used in other parts of the Bible that often what's happening is simply a description of what the author is seeing occurring. So in verse 26, if Paul is simply just seeing that what is occurring in the Corinthian church is that hymns and lessons that anyone is bringing these forward, he's not justifying that or giving an imperative that because this is happening in Corinth, this must happen in every church. I think it's just important that when we read the scripture, a lot of times you see characters in the Old Testament doing things and you might jump to the conclusion that this must be done, but just because the author is giving a description of what is occurring doesn't mean he's endorsing that activity or making that an imperative for you to do as well. And, and Cole, something Scott just said that, that I, I agree with too after reading through this again and again, but he's not really saying no, that's a bad thing either. He's not saying it's bad if everyone's coming ready to give something or ready to give a gift. He's not saying that's a negative thing, but he's saying let all things be done for edification, but then he's going to list out an order for that. So if there's a thousand people, he's going to break the order down of how many should be and, and if you come ready with something, there's order for the spirit, there's order for the church. But yeah, it's, like, it's interesting, Scott, when he said that, he's not saying no, that's bad, but he's going to lay down what the order is going to be for that after. Yes, and let's look at some of that order. And remember, there are shepherds, there are elders. The word shepherd means pastor. There are elders, which are spiritual leaders. There are deacons that are meant to serve and to be servants within the body, and you have positions of authority in order to oversee what is taking place. Paul is an apostle that founded this body of believers, and he's writing back as a spiritual father that we see in this context. He brought many of them to faith. He laid the foundation. The foundation is Christ. So he has the ability as an apostle to speak back authoritatively to them. And that is order in itself. He is an overseer as an apostle over this work. So let's look at verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. This is order. And I was in a service one time in a Bible college, there was 18 messages in tongues. Some of them were interpreted, some of them were not interpreted, and the whole service was confusion, and people just started walking out because there wasn't order. 
What does Paul say? Two or three at the most, and one must interpret. For the body to be edified, if you're going to speak in tongues within the meeting, it has to be interpreted and no more than three. That's order. And people today in Pentecostal and charismatic services, when you talk about order, they get upset and say, no, you're going against the Spirit. Well, this is Paul speaking under the inspiration of God's Spirit and giving them order. When there's not order, it gives fuel to what we call the cessationist, those that don't believe in the gifts, the ungifted, to say, look at the confusion that they're bringing to the body of Christ. This is not of God. But when there's order and everything is judged by God's word and everything has accountability, then we see a holy reverence in the spiritual gifts and we see the power of God working through that and we see how powerful the spiritual gifts can be for the body of Christ. We can even see it for the ungifted and for the unbeliever, the conviction that will come upon them as they're not hearing messages in tongues that are not being interpreted. They're hearing prophecy that is coming from God and they're falling on their face before God, recognizing that God is speaking to their lives. And so when there's order, God is upholding that congregation. All right. Look at verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, a person, an interpreter is one that interprets. If there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So when you begin to speak in an unknown language, you're praying in the spirit, but it's between you and God. But for others, they don't even know what's going on. They cannot be edified. They cannot be convicted if they're an unbeliever or an ungifted man. So therefore, it doesn't serve any purpose if there's not someone there that has a spiritual gift of, of interpretation of tongues. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Someone's prophesying and the others need to pass judgment upon what is being prophesied. Now, Cole talked earlier about specifics with prophecy and not just flowerly language that just says nice things about people. But there are specific things that are being spoken and let others pass judgment on what's being said. How do we pass judgment? The Word of God. If they're speaking specific things, what they're speaking has to come true. If they're bringing a revelation, the person that they're speaking to there's going to be some confirmation of what they're saying. Yes, this is of God. God is speaking to my life. What you're bringing about my life and what God is revealing to you about me, yes, there's confirmation. This is God speaking to my life. There is the passing of judgment. Now, in charismatic churches, we don't want anybody to pass judgment. We want a free-for-all. That means we want just everybody to do what they want to do, and some of them. But in churches that believe in the spiritual gifts and they're in operation, if they abide by these guidelines, it's powerful. And people are not going to be abusing the spiritual gifts because there's going to be passing judgment of prophecy. Is that of God or not? And there has to be that holy accountability over anyone 
that prophesies over all the spiritual gifts. Let's continue. I understand that the word is God's plumb line, is the very source of truth. Is it possible to have prophecy that is not in the word, but it's in the spirit of the word, if that makes any sense? The word of God and the spirit of God can never be separated. So I'm not sure if I'm quite understanding, but the word of God is God-breathed. So there's not a separation from the Spirit of God and His Word. And I don't know if that's what you're trying to say, but there's not a difference between the two. You cannot say the Spirit of God told me to do this and the Word of God say the exact opposite. Correct. And I, think, yeah. I think a prophecy would never contradict anything in God's Word, uh, yes. a prophecy but from might, God. I guess the point I'm trying to find out here is that can it be done in the spirit of God's Word? It might not be called out word for word what the prophecy is coming forth, but yet it would still be somebody prophesies over somebody about healing. Okay, and we know God heals, but for this particular incident, it's not exactly clarification of the, of the uh, prophecy. I'm still a little bit unclear. Just one second. I think what he's trying to say is someone is giving a prophecy. You couldn't look back in the Old Testament and see word for word where that prophecy is coming from. But if it fits with the spirit of the character of God, okay, this type of prophecy lines up with something similar from Scripture, the type of thing that the Spirit speaks, even though you can't look back in Joel and say, oh, this prophecy comes from there, could it light up with the Spirit of God? Yes, prophecy is seeing into the future. What makes a person a prophet is that God shows them something, a revelation, and what they speak must come true. Now, that's not all of what prophets do. Prophets also proclaim. But if someone speaks they must only speak in the name of the Lord, and what they speak must come true. We see that back in the law. They are called a seer. God has shown them something in the future, and so they're prophesying. And in the Old Covenant, if what they prophesied did not come true, they are to be killed. If they did not prophesy in the name of the Lord, then they were to be killed. So there is strong accountability for prophecy. And what you're saying is, no, it doesn't have to be word for word for some other prophecy that came in the past, but what they're prophesying, what God is showing you, the principles and the character of God and the word of God is seen through that and what you prophesy must come true. Now, under the new covenant, we don't stone them. But what we do say is you're not a true prophet, you're not to prophesy anymore. And I've done that with individuals before. I have held them accountable and I have told them you're not a prophet. I don't want to hear you prophesying again. You did not hear from God and you said thus saith the Lord and you had a revelation from God and it did not come true. If someone prophesies something that is contrary to the character of God, I can immediately say that is not a true prophecy. If someone comes to say, Pat, you were a single man 
and I believe I have a prophecy, and I say to you, you are to marry this lady over here, but she's not a believer. The word of God says, do not be unequally yoked. Alan can immediately pass judgment and say, that is not a prophecy from God. See, we have to pass judgment upon it because I've asked you to do something that is contrary to God's word. So I don't know if this answers the question, but a prophecy is seeing something in the future. That's what defines a person as a prophet, and what we prophesy must come true. Another element of how people are prophesying today in a lot of charismatic circles, they're just saying stuff and there's not any way to hold them accountable for what they're saying because it's too general. But the prophecies in the past are specific. Cole mentioned this earlier. You have to be able to hold them accountable. And when they do all these general sayings, I say to them, you haven't prophesied. You're just saying words of encouragement, and a lot of it I don't even understand. A prophecy has to be held accountable, and it has to be done in the name of the Lord, and it has to be consistent with the character and the word of God. So let's continue here. Let's look at verse 30, and that was a great question, Pat. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy, this is key, one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches, plural, of the holy ones, the saints. So prophecy functions as a revelation, revealing something to an individual who is seated or to an individual revealing something to them that God has shown to them about that individual. Now look at verse 30. The first one must keep silent. How do we understand that? We spent some time talking about this before we started teaching. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. That means you can prophesy, you can bring, bring a revelation, but after you have brought that, you're to be silent. And if someone else has something, let them bring it because the spirits of the, spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. There's going to be a judgment that's going to come forth if you look back in verse 29 and let the others pass judgment on what is being said. So you've prophesied, you have brought a revelation to one that is seated, now it's time someone else comes. It's not for you to start speaking and contradicting the other person that is speaking, but there is gonna be the passing of judgment by the other prophets. Okay, I think, Alan, you had something there. No, just what made sense in my head, too, if we're talking, you know, so Paul right there before says, let two or three prophets speak, so three's your max. So if you were the first prophet to get up, prophesy, you know, you sit down, someone else gets up and prophesies. For you to get up again, you're, you're limiting anybody else because you're that third one, and that kind of clicked in my brain, at least for yeah. me, to say, you know, sit down, let the other one speak. And if there's a third, which is the last one that Paul gives authority as the apostle to say it's two or, th or three, you know, it doesn't say four or five. By doing that, you would be taking up 
two of those three spots, which which Paul's saying that's out of order to do too. Yes, and some people may say, no, that's only for those that speak in tongues and then interpret it. However, we understand from this context, prophecy and a message in tongues that is interpreted functions in the same way. So it's the same principle for both. And it's a very, very good point that you're making there. The first one is to keep silent. Now it's time for someone else to speak. And all of this is going to come under judgment or going to pass judgment on what is being said. Please, everyone listen to that. Prophecy, a message in tongues, interpretation of tongues, there is judgment in the house of God. Does this represent God? Is this true? Does this edify the body? Does this line up with God's word? And if it doesn't, there will be a passing of judgment upon the person who spoke. And that is something that should bring a holy fear, not an unholy fear, but a holy fear. Before we speak, we have to know that God is speaking through our lives. It's not a game. It's not something that we do casually. This is a spiritual gift from God. And if we're not going to abuse people with it, we cannot treat it casually we must know that God is speaking through our life. And then it becomes so powerful, so powerful within people's lives. I was just wondering, is it any time appropriate to have a prophecy to the church that brings judgment? Most of the prophecies that we see in the past were prophecies of judgment. Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, we can go on and on, Amos, Hosea, Jonah, we continue. Most of it was messages of judgment. Most of the false prophets were messages of peace and prosperity. In fact, it's almost it's consistent with that. In the New Covenant, you have prophecies that are revealing who Christ is. And then you have prophecy like Agabus that prophesied a famine was coming upon the land. So God showed him about a famine that was coming upon the land, and that was fulfilled. He was proven to be a true prophet. And you see that in the New Covenant, because some teach only in the New Covenant are you proclaiming past prophets and their prophecies. But Agabus is talking about something in the future that a famine is coming on the land, and that was fulfilled in the time of Claudius, the emperor. In fact, Paul and others were collecting money for the Jewish believers from the Gentile believers because of this famine that had come into Judea. Yes, it can be judgment. It can be things in the future that are not positive that are going to take place that God is revealing. Judgment is one thing. Condemnation is another thing. Is it possibly to have prophecy with condemnation on the body of the church? Think about Peter with Ananias and Sapphira. Today, they're going to carry you out of this building because you have lied to God. God revealed that to them about their sin, and that day they were, they were truly slain in the Spirit. You want to see slain in the Spirit. They were hit by the power of God, and they didn't get up. I would say that was a prophecy of judgment that was a judgment of condemnation upon Ananias and Sapphira. So I can see that context as well. And, 
And one other thing, Scott, on this this passage. So we talk it's that one right there that says, "And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets." So is that essentially saying that? You have the spirit of prophecy, but you can control this and keep this in order. And it's not something, I mean, we've heard in, or I've heard in charismatic circles where you just have to say this because, you know, just had to come out is an excuse sometimes. But is that saying that, you know, so if you have that spirit, you can control that. And if if that third prophet is already gone, yeah, maybe you have a word from the Lord, but that's something you're going to hold for another time, another service, another meeting. I I would say this, Alan, I would see it more going back to verse 29, and it's a great question. Let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. I see the others as are subject to the prophets. Some see the subject to the prophets of prophecy in the past, so they see it as in the reference of prophets that have prophesied in the past that what we're prophesying now is subject to what they have said. There is an element of that is true, but the others past judgment, I believe, are these other prophets that do look at the Word of God, that do look at what has been prophesied in the past, and they pass judgment on what has been prophesied. So I, I believe there are actually individuals that are passing judgment within the Corinthian church or should be passing judgment over what is being said. It's a, it's a good question. Now, up to this point, it's been very easy for us. And now we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Let's jump right into it. Don't be scared to deal with these issues. This is the Word of God, and it's very powerful what Paul is saying. Verses 34 through 36. Alan, do you want to read these verses? Sure. So verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And read verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? Verse 36 is really, I believe, we talked about a little bit of sarcasm, a rebuke against them. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? No. Or has it come to you only? No. They need to learn to receive instructions. What is he talking about? Women keeping silent in the churches, plural. Not just for this church, but to the churches. If they desire to learn anything, verse 35, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. So let's look at this, and this is one of these passages that Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. We know that God uses women to speak to the body and to speak in the gift of prophecy. Deborah, Huldah in the Old Covenant. You see the daughters of Philip, the evangelist, who had been a deacon in the uh, congregation in Jerusalem. When you prophesy, you're prophesying, you're speaking. And so we know that women can speak, and we see God using women to speak. However, he seems to say they should not speak. But I believe that the key here is verse 35, and please, everyone that's listening, this is based upon an assumption. 
going from what we do know to what we do not know. We do not know the full context here. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. In a gathering in that day that was not, typically was not men and women together. It was the men together in a typical synagogue context. Where were the women? In the outer. On the outside. So men are speaking to men. Men are in authority over the men, and the husbands and the men are in authority over whom? The women. Okay. So something could have been happening within this congregation as they were speaking and speaking to the men who are the heads of their homes, and then during the service, women are speaking and disrupting the service that is meant for the men, and the word here is disgrace. It is a disgrace that is going on. Wait till you get home to receive instruction. Because in that culture, in that day, in all of the churches, the men are speaking to the men, and the men give instruction to their women. For a woman to speak was a disgrace. It was bringing disorder. It is called here also translated improper for them to do that. It could have been that they were on the outside trying to listen and asking their husbands, speaking into the service, what is being said? Can you explain this to me? But Paul is saying, no, this is not the way it should be. Remain silent. When you get home, ask the instructions from your husbands. This is an assumption. But if you go from what you do know to what you don't know, we see women speaking in the Word of God. We see Miriam singing to the whole nation of Israel. We see them being used by God to speak, but here they're to remain silent in the churches because there is some disorder that has taken place in the Corinthian church, and he says to them, wait till you get home, and then your husbands can give you instruction. Yeah, just an additional thought. When, when he says in verse 34, women are to keep silent in the churches, it's clearly plural, but do you think as in Corinth there would have most likely have been multiple house churches and gatherings within the city? Could that plural form of in the churches be speaking to the situation that was happening in all the churches in Corinth? Or would, that, would you see that as all churches in all places? Yes, that's a really good question, but it, that's bringing a little bit of our American culture, Western culture, that we have here in Birmingham, probably 2,000 churches, and we see them as individual churches. In the New Testament, you had the church at Antioch, the church at Ephesus, the church at Laodicea, the church at Corinth, the church at Philippi. It's one body within that city. You had the church at Jerusalem, but they met from house to house. That didn't mean that you had 20, 30, 50, 100 different churches. They're one body. And so when he's talking to the church at Corinth, even if they're meeting in multiple places all through the week, it's one church in Corinth. So when he is saying to the churches, he is talking about Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and these different individual churches in different cities that represent the body of Christ. 
So I don't see them as multiple congregations within one city. And I think contextually throughout the New Covenant, you can see that. I even consider in Birmingham the church at Birmingham. I don't see 2,000 individual churches. I see the body of Christ, and I see a lot of shepherds that are raising up people, preaching, shepherding, raising them up, discipling them, but I see us as the church in Birmingham. I see us as one body. And so I think here, Cole, contextually, he's talking about all the churches he's talking about in other cities. It's a very good question. So this is instructions about all the churches that are meeting in different cities where the gospel's been planted. So just to clarify then, if this specific situation is occurring where there's disorder within the church as uh, women are asking questions of their husbands, is that something that you would see only happening in Corinth, or that's something that's happening in all these different cities, and that's why Paul would address the solution to all the cities? He is addressing it because all that we know for sure is happening in Corinth, but it could have been happening in other places, and constantly through this letter, he says, like last night we were teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says this applies to all the churches. So there are issues that's coming out of the Hellenistic culture that would be similar to Athens, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus. There are similar things probably propping up that he might have dealt with this as well in different places. But this is instruction for all the churches. Women are to remain silent. Now again, my assumption is there was something of disorder that was taking place because culturally, historically, they are speaking to the men. The women are not even in the service of that time. They're outside and there could have been those that are speaking and saying, what is he saying? Tell him I don't agree with what he's saying or this or that. What is this prophecy? I want to know. However, Paul is saying, wait till you get home to receive instruction from your husbands. Just real quick, Scott, to clarify for me, maybe maybe somebody else is thinking this too. So right at the start of 34, women are to keep silent in the churches, which you just talked about. Then at the very end of 35, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. How do you separate that church and churches, you know, based on what you've talked about, you know, with, with the church being the body? Because I, I understand that, yeah. and I agree. Like you say, the church in Birmingham, that's the body of believers. Right. But when he's saying churches... And then the last one, it just goes, women speak in church. Well, I think that's within the service, in the ecclesia, that when you gather together, it is improper, it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in a ecclesia, in the church. But again, we know that God allows women to prophesy. So something was going on that was bringing disorder And Paul is saying, wait till you get home to receive your instruction. Now, scripturally, we see, and I'm going to get off a little bit, that women are used by God to speak, but here there's probably something of disorder that's taking place. And culturally, the men are in the service, the women are on the outside, and he's saying, wait till you get home to receive instruction. But the one principle that's consistent all the way through 
is that you do not see God placing women in a position of authority over men to teach. In fact, Paul's going to say in Timothy, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then he uses scripture to back that up. And so all the way through the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, you do not see God placing women in authority over men, not in the home and not in, in, in the body of Christ, not in, within the nation of Israel or the church. And now someone's arguing right now, but what about Deborah? That's the only example, and I acknowledge that, that Devorah, Deborah, was placed in authority over men and God was using uh, Deborah in authority. If you read that story of one of the judges, the men were so weak, the men were not willing to step into a position of authority. In fact, they weren't even willing to go into battle unless Deborah led them. And God said to the men, I'm going to make sure no man gets credit for what's about to take place. It is God's design for men to lead in the home and in the body of Christ. There's not a dichotomy that's going on between the two. But when men refuse to step forward, believe me, God's going to raise up a woman to do his work. But I challenge men to step up in the home, quit being lazy, be a spiritual servant leader. Men in the church, step forward. You be the prayer warriors. You step forward and allow God to use you to lead within the body of Christ, which sets a beautiful example and model for the home. And when we start promoting the opposite of God's design, you see the dysfunction that's going to take place within the home. This is consistent throughout Scripture. Deborah's the only lady that God placed in authority over men. And you see the reason why the men were so weak and they weren't willing to step forward. And God made sure no man got credit for the battles that were going to be won. Only Deborah was going to receive credit. But it is God's design for men to step forward. And so men step forward, allow God to use you as a servant leader to lead the body of Christ, to lead your homes, to set the example for your children, not just your sons, but for your daughters also. And the culture that we live in is promoting the opposite and the church is not embracing biblical principles, they're embracing worldly principles. And it's time for us to get back to the Word of God. Now, I'll stop with that, and let's finish out 1 Corinthians 14, unless you have a question or a comment. Pat. Well, I was just thinking that you always tell me to look at context, and he is writing to the early church of Corinth. And I think that he's, he's laying down foundational things here for the church and how it is to have everything decency and order, have things that are edifying and that brings honor to Christ in the church. And you said a lot of the stuff I was going to talk about as far as if you look at the modern church today, men have stepped away from their responsibility to lead. And when we become men of, who are servants and want to serve our wives in the marriage, our wives won't... Servant leaders. Yes, yeah. yes. And our wives will not uh, have a rebellious spirit and, and fight on being in subjection. 
that can be true or it cannot. It also doesn't mean that if a person is a servant leader that the wives will immediately be in submission to their husbands. Also, just because a wife is submissive to her husband doesn't mean that the husband is going to be a servant leader. It takes two individuals with godly principles focused upon God doing the right things to make a marriage work properly. The same thing within the body of Christ. It has people that need to know the principles of God's Word and people abiding by it, understanding, having not just the convictions, but the right convictions. There are some people out there that have convictions that women should be pastors over men, no problem. It's a wrong conviction. But they're, they're willing to lay down their lives for that conviction. But it's not a biblical principle. And so, therefore, men are to be servant leaders whether or not the wife submits to them or not. Just like a wife is to be submissive to her husband, and her husband's a lazy couch potato. Mm. What is couch potato? He just sits around on a chair all day and does nothing. But she is still to be submissive to him. He's still the head. He's still the leader, even though he's not a servant leader. It goes both ways. She is to submit to her husband as we submit to Christ. Now, these are basic principles that we have thrown away, but this is what we have to get back to. So I've heard it all my life. Oh, if men would just be servant leaders, women will submit. No, no, that, that, that doesn't necessarily take place. That's a phrase or a saying that's easy to say, but no, a, a man can do everything that he's supposed to do and the wife still not submit. A pastor, a shepherd can do everything the right way and he can still have rebellion within the body of Christ. It takes the word of God being planted into the hearts of everyone so that everyone does the right thing. It only takes one person to mess up a marriage. No, I think you're right, Scott. And I think that's a lazy thing we can, and yeah, there is a cause and effect to some things, but ultimately we take ownership of our own spirituality and our own walk and whether, you know, your wife is not doing what she's supposed to do. You as a man have to do what you're supposed to do. Whether that husband's not doing what he's supposed to do as a godly Christian woman, you have to do what you're supposed to do and your responsibility. And if you want to blame, there's always an excuse, you know, you can always blame somebody for something and that's that's probably another podcast but <laughs> yes yes and talk about this podcast we're at an hour and four minutes for about 20 verses here and then we have a teaching at seven o'clock so we got to keep on moving so let's finish this out and i do hope and pray that we're hitting the original intent and essence of what is being taught here by paul to corinth and what he is saying to them is what he is saying to us today what god is saying to us today Verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that these things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. If someone thinks he's a spiritual person or a prophet, recognize, acknowledge what Paul is saying. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul is saying as the founder of this church, he is not recognized. God's authority is not with him. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Don't be like some that say, no, that's of the devil, or that's not of God, and that's ceased. 
No, don't do that. And do not forbid to speak in tongues. Verse 40, if you missed everything about the spiritual gifts, do not miss this last statement. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let everything that we do in the spiritual gifts glorify God, edify the body of the Messiah, and let it be done in a way that brings a great testimony, leaves a great testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it's not doing that, I would rather just remain silent than to have all these spiritual gifts, understand the proper guidelines, and God will recognize you. If you don't recognize them, you're going to do a lot of damage, and God's authority is not with you. And you'll end up being like the Corinthian church, where the spiritual gifts were probably being used to attack people. And we never want to see that, because it brings a bad testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's close in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask Cole if you'll close us in prayer, and then we're going to end this podcast. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we shared today. Lord, we thank you for your word, these words that uh, you spoke through Paul to the church in Corinth that sharpened and uplifted and challenged that church. And God, we just humbly pray today, God, that they would also sharpen our own lives. Would they have us to examine the, our churches, our assemblies. Um, and we just pray, God, that your word will continually reform and affect the way that we live. Uh, we pray that this podcast, whoever is listening, God, that it would bless them and also challenge them. And we pray that we would honor you in all we do today and the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.